Good morning. morning. A couple announcements before we get into the lesson, and uh, we're going to let you guys know of an opportunity coming up. Uh, we normally don't say much. You know, we've been we've been in, as a ministry now for over four years. And over the last four years, we've given over a quarter million dollars worth of materials away for free uh, over the last four years. And we've not asked for donations. They just keep coming in, and we keep just giving, and that's working nice. But this particular year, 2015, there's a, a special event happening, and that is the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists will be meeting in San Antonio, Texas. And normally when we go to an event, the events that we have gone to and given our stuff away, the largest event we've gone to has about 7,000 people in attendance. And this event will have between 50 and 70,000 people in attendance from all over the world. So it's an opportunity in one setting to give and our goal is to just make available for free all of our materials. And so I just want to put out there, if you want to be part of that process, then, you know, it's, uh, it's now in the next few months that we'll be ordering and producing these materials to be able to give away in July. And then, <clears throat> how many so far have actually watched the Journal of the Watcher? Yeah, how many? Yeah, we've got incredibly good responses, but we've got some frustrating responses because it's available currently just in iBook form or... Uh, Android app, and we are finding out that a lot of people don't have those devices to to watch that. And so, uh, originally, we wanted it to be an. an uh, for those who don't know, iBooks is a program in Apple products, but iBooks are only available because of copyright issues in 51 countries in the world. So we've gotten emails from various countries. They can't even get it in iBooks, even if they have the program, because it's not available there. So we made an appeal uh, to have the app available, which has got different copyright laws, so it's available in more countries. And our appeal was successful, and we're going to have it now available in, in, in the App Store. Sometime within the next this week, it should be coming out in the App Store. So those countries who haven't been able to get it thus far. And then we've gotten emails that people haven't been able to get on their PCs, because it's... and. Well, we're going to make it, and we've already contracted to have it made into an MP4 movie, so you can get it in iTunes. And PCs, you know, you can get the iTunes program, and then you can watch it on your PCs and iTunes. We'll let you know when that's available. We're also receiving emails. I got this email this week. Thank you for your ministry. I've been totally blessed with the new understanding of God's love law that I find myself excited to share with everyone who gives a hint of interest. I've been a Christian all my life, but not until reading your books am I able to say, with experience, the truth will set you free. How many of you experienced that freedom? Yes. Uh, today, God reveals what, I would, what he would have me do day by day with, with victory as he does in me what I cannot do for myself. Such freedom, trusting him to lead me, clean, clean me, take me where he would have me go. Please send copies of all the books and DVDs to share with my church, family, community, friends, and family. Thank you again for your generosity and ministry, sharing the truth about God. So, and this is just representative. I get these every week, people just from around the world sharing. So let's begin with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study today. As we study about the gospel, we ask that your spirit will enlighten our minds, that we can see uh, greater depths of the truth about your kingdom of love. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And the title in our last lesson for the book of James is The Everlasting Gospel. And first question, what is the everlasting gospel? As you think about this, you go out into a, a Christian church, go, go to church later today or, or tomorrow, and you ask people, what is the gospel? Just listen for the answers. I went online and I looked up, God, what is the gospel? And there's a, the, the most common answers, here's three of answers I found online. And I've got the website so you can go there if you want. But these are the three answers. The word gospel literally means good news. 
It is the plan that God has designed to save sinful human beings from eternal separation from him. Here's a second one. The word gospel means good news. So the gospel of Christ is the good news of his coming to provide forgiveness of sins for all who will believe. And the third one. The gospel is the message that God will give us pardon from our sins and eternal life with him in heaven. This this is very representative of most of the way people think about the gospel. And and what did you hear? If you were to distill it down, what's the focus of of this gospel? The word gospel, Lord, means good news. It is a plan that God has designed to save sinful human beings from eternal separation from him. It's It's focused on us and our problem. Yes, and the focus, if you notice, all these focus are either on our condition, our situation, our problem, and generally they're also, the first one didn't, but the other two also weave in a legal weave or legal aspect to it. So our status and our legal situation. But the gospel that we're talking about is the everlasting or eternal gospel, the good news that we find in Revelation 14, eternal gospel given to the whole world, yeah, and, and to prepare Christ for his return. Now, is it eternally true? In other words, if we go back in eternity past, can we find that Jesus died for our sins in eternity past? Before the earth was even created. So how is that eternal good news? Is that the eternal good news? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, it is true that Jesus was willing to die for our sins in eternity past. That's true. And it is also true that Jesus did die for our salvation. And that, therefore, is part of the good news. But is this part, the part about us being saved, the eternal? Or is it a more recent expression, a more recent revelation, a more recent unfolding of the good news that's always been true? Just God loves us and he does... He gave us the gift of Jesus. Exactly. Yes. If Jesus was the Father, then wouldn't the good news be the truth about his character? Yes. So one way to say that, would it be good news that we get to live forever in eternity with God if God is the kind of being Satan says he is? Would you like to live for eternity with that God? You see, so just having our sins dealt with, just having eternity with God is only good news if God is not like that. Would you really want to live eternity, for instance, with an, with an Adolf Hitler magnified by a hundred or a thousand? So, the good news would have been good news even if Adam and Eve had never fallen. There you go. See, now let's get to it. Let's see if we can unpack this even farther. Listen to 2 Timothy 2.10. 2 Timothy 2.10. Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Through the gospel. Now think that through. Because most of the definitions of the gospel are that we don't have to die and we get to have eternal life. That's what they say. So is that what this says here? That the gospel is the destruction of death and the bringing forth of life? Or that the gospel was the means by which Christ destroyed death? and brought immortality to light. In other words, is the good news that death has been destroyed, or is the good news what has destroyed death? Do you see the difference? Or am I confusing you? Both are good news, but what is this, this passage is indicating that 
he has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel was the means whereby, the good news somehow was the means whereby death was destroyed and life was brought. Well, how is that? How do we understand that? Well, this was written over 100 years ago by one of the founders of our church. Let's see if this starts us down a path. The gospel and the medical missionary work are to advance together. The gospel is to be bound up with the principles of true health reform. You know, there were false health, health revivals going on in the 19th century. So, so I, th- I think that the words are very precise. The gospel is to be bound up with the principles of true health reform. Christianity is to be brought into practical life. Earnest, thorough, reformatory work is to be done. The true Bible religion is an outflowing of the love of God for fallen man. What's true Bible religion? Outflowing of the love of God. We are to present the principles of health reform before the people, doing all in our power to lead men and women to see the necessity of these principles and to practice them. So, do you see a connection between gospel and health reform? What's the connection? How are they bound up together? What is that connection? They're driven by natural law. They're driven by design law. How life is actually constructed to operate. Doctors can't get patients well outside the laws of health. They have to move people towards the laws of health. So too, our eternal salvation can't be experienced outside God's design. We have to be brought back in harmony. This is a principle being described here, not an arbitrary rule. What's an arbitrary rule? The speed limit is an arbitrary rule. (laughs) It is based on principle. But it's arbitrary, and it's down to the lowest common denominator. You understand the speed limits are not based on the cars with the best traction, the best tires, the best suspension, the best handling, the best analog brake systems. They're based on the cars with the worst of those things. And and the worst drivers. Yes, that's right. (laughs) I heard that. (laughs) Okay? So the basis of health reform is... Principles, design, how life is built. And that principle or design is what? How would you describe it? From scripture. God's law is the law of love. So listen to this out of Christ's Object Lessons 258. It says, in living for self, he has rejected that divine love which would have flowed out in mercy to his fellow man. Thus he has rejected life, for God is love, and love is life. Now how do you understand? Can somebody just give me an example of love being life? Physiologically, the principle of love is the principle of giving. Parents creating children, for example. Parents creating children would be giving of themselves and bringing forth life. That's exactly right. That's a good example. Here's another one, Education 99. The same power that upholds nature is working also in man. The same great laws that guide like the stars. And what kind of laws guide the stars? Laws of... Laws of gravity, these types of things, okay? Uh, And the atom control human life. The laws that govern the heart's action, regulating the flow of the current of the life up to the body, are the laws of the mighty intelligence that has the jurisdiction of the soul. From him all life proceeds. Only in harmony with him can be found its true sphere of action. For all the objects of his creation, the condition is the same. A life sustained by receiving the life of God. 
a life exercised in harmony with the Creator's will, to transgress his law, physical, mental, or moral, get your mind around what I was about to say, is to place oneself out of harmony with the universe and to introduce discord, anarchy, and ruin. This is design law. This is how things were constructed to operate. Do you understand this penal Roman construct of a system of rules that requires some executive dictator to oversee and enforce? It's all lie. It's fabrication. Is it the moral law arbitrary? Uh, Russell's saying that because I've had some dialogue this week with some people who have actually said that there are design law, natural law, laws of health, laws of physics, but when it comes to God's moral law, his law is arbitrary. That's what some people have emailed me this week. And that's why Russell's pointing that out. No, this is what it, notice what it says. His law, physical, mental, moral, to, to transgress it is to be place oneself out of harmony with the universe. It's not how life is designed to operate. You, and, and think about the moral law. I deal with this with people all the time. What happens in the mind, the heart, the character of a person who cheats on their spouse? Even if the spouse doesn't find out. Do they have more peace or less peace? Guilt. They're fearful. The fear circuitry fires. They live in apprehension. They begin plotting and wondering whether they're going to be discovered. They start firing amygdala, which starts inflammatory cascades, which cause reaction back on the brain. They actually cause changes in the brain that are negative and damaging to the brain, just from deviating from that design law. Disrupt the circuitry of the brain. This is what happens. And I could go on. How about you're cheating, you're embezzling from your employer. You're stealing money. Just think about the reaction you have when your boss calls you into his office to give you a Christmas bonus, but you don't know. They just call you in. And I need to talk to you in my office. What happens? You're terrified. You're stressed. Why? They might find out. I might get caught. And then what happens if he doesn't find out, but he gives you a bonus and you've been stealing? Do you experience that with joy? <laughs> you experience it with guilt. You can't even have the joy of life. It's, it's, it's out of harmony with our design to deviate from moral law. Yes? When Jesus says it's not just the act of doing adultery, it's even if you consider it. So even if you're considering it, you're damaging yourself. Not considering. Choosing in your heart. There's a difference between considering. Yeah, okay, all right. Because we're, when we're tempted, that, uh, Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife, which means he had to consider the implications of what that meant but then he chose to reject it. Yes. So choosing sense. to do it, what lusting yeah. after a woman in our heart is more than considering. Correct. Okay. Okay. Gr- uh, granted, but but my point is that it isn't for those who are so concerned about washing away the act. That's right. It's beyond that. That's that exactly we have, right. We have healing for. That's exactly right. So ha- here's another design. Yes. I just want to comment on that because um, I've taught public high school, and if you are feeling guilty, you've taken advantage of someone else, and a way that people deal with that guilt is to blame the other person for being so gullible or so stupid as to allow that to happen. It's a way that they cope with that. Yes, okay, so when somebody experiences a conviction of guilt that's appropriate, we won't even talk about the inappropriate guilt, there's two ways to avoid it or resolve it. One is repentance and restoration. In harmony with God's design, experience his grace and renewal of heart, that you have a new heart and right spirit, and so you have peace because you've been set right and made things right. But there's another way to avoid that guilt as well, and that is denial and distortion. Like you say, it wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me, God, I didn't do anything wrong, she did blame, externalization, projection. And what we do, if you've heard the, the, the comment, he's warping the truth or he's bending the truth, the truth can't be bent. 
You can only bend your mind around the truth. And that's what's being bent, is your mind. And so conceive of a telephone pole that's straight, and we hold a lens up between you and the pole, and now through the lens, the pole appears bent. Have we bent the pole? This is what people do when they do what you're describing. To avoid the guilt, they bend and warp their mind. But they have to keep this lens on all the time, lest they see themselves for what they really are, so they have a bent warp on the way they see reality. And you've met people like this. You've had to have dis- tried to have discussion with them. You present evidence. And think about talking to the person who's looking at the pole through the lens, and you're seeing it for what it is. Will you ever convince them it's straight as long as they're looking through the lens? This is like these people, these bent minds. You can't convince them. Okay, so exactly right. But, but then again, notice the natural consequence, the design law. It's only corrupting the mind, searing the conscience, warping the character further and further and further. And so sometimes I have patients who say, yeah, but, but if what you say is true, I know people who've done things and they don't feel bad about it. So how is that a consequence? Think it through. If you molested a child today and you could sleep well tonight and not be disturbed by it, how damaged must you be? <laughs> So when you, when you lose any disturbance about it, it's not an evidence that you're getting away with it. It's further evidence of how corroded and damaged you've been by it. Okay, yes. So um, a prisoner, my father taught in a prison, who has tried to rob someone and the person resisted and he ended up killing the person will say it was his fault because he tried to be a hero. Yes. And that prisoner cannot get well right. and be restored to righteousness until they can acknowledge their own wickedness, if you will, evil, if you want to call it that, selfishness. The reason I'm bringing this up is I think when we, when we want to blame someone else, we need to look and see why are we doing that. Okay, yes. Uh, one of the, you know, you get those Facebook quotes. One of the ones that came through that really seemed to make this point drive home is it simply said, we are condemned by our sins, not for them. I like that. That's very much. That's very good. And Jesus said, of course, by your words you are condemned, and by your words you'll be Acquitted or justified or... Yes. Uh, what if you redefine life as close to God or it, it, near God and then death would be away from God? Or you, you absolutely can describe it that way because as we read in one of these passages and the Bible describes, all life comes from God. God alone is immortal. We do not have immortality. Our, we are mortal. We derive our life by being connected with him. So if we sever that connection, then of course we don't have life. So you could put it that way. Uh, this idea, though, I really want you to get your mind around is this law of love, how life is designed to operate. Another example is we must receive nutrition. And nutrition comes from plants. Yes, all nutrition comes from plants. Even if you get it from an animal source, you're just getting secondhand hand-me-down nutrition. Okay? It's coming from the plants. And then we give back the products of digestion to fertilize the plants. This is a cycle of giving. If something happens with your body where your body stops giving back, you will die. (laughs) Okay? Painfully. It won't be fun. This is just a design, how it's built. So how is this principle then related to the gospel? Here's another quote out of Christ's Object Lessons on 28. No man can rightly present the law of God without the gospel or the gospel without the law. The law is the gospel embodied And the gospel is the law unfolded. The law is the root. The gospel is the fragrant blossom and fruit which it bears. Now, just contemplate that for a minute. See, if you think imperial dictator law, then this becomes corroded and corrupted. Only when we understand God is love and when he created, he constructed his universe to operate 
in harmony with his own nature that we actually then can see this. And you think this through the law is the, uh, the, the law is the root and the gospel or the good news is the blossom. What is that metaphor describing? A natural process, an automatic outgrowth that comes. Yes. And it just, you know, years ago when I was reading the Psalms, David was writing all these wonderful things. I delight in my law. I love that law. And I was thinking, really? You know, a list of rules? You really delight in that? And, and then I realized that he understood the law and that that's why God called him a man after God's own heart. Exactly. Well said. So, while in eternity past, Christ had not yet died for sinners... What then in eternity past and eternity future that Christ brought to earth resulted in death being destroyed and immortality be brought to life? What is the, the good news from eternity past and future that Christ brought to earth that destroyed death and brought life? Or what is true through all time, past, present, and future that is bound up with true health reform, if you want to put it that way? Or what is the relationship between the law and the gospel? Well, here's another quote. Let's see if we can unpack it. This is out of Councils of the Church 2.16. When the gospel is received in its purity and power, I love this, it is a cure for the maladies that originated in sin. The son of righteousness arises with healing in his wings, Malachi 4.2. Notice the, the description, healing, restoration. Not all this world Not all this world bestows can heal a broken heart or impart peace of mind or remove care or banish disease. Fame, genius, talent, all are powerless to gladden the sorrowful soul or to restore a wasted life. The life of God in the soul is man's only hope. The the love which Christ diffuses through the whole being is a vitalizing power. Every vital part, the brain, the heart, the nerves, it touches with healing. By it, love, the highest energies of the being are roused to activity. By it, love, it frees the soul from guilt and sorrow, the anxiety and care that crushes the life forces. With it, love, comes serenity and composure. It, love, implants in the soul joy that nothing earthly can destroy. Joy in the Holy Spirit. Health-giving, life-giving joy. Our Savior's words, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, are a prescription for the healing of physical, mental, and spiritual ills. What do you hear? What is the gospel? What is the good news? How does this good news destroy death and bring life? Do you hear the good news of the good news of God is love? Life is built on love. This is how the universe operates. God is not like Satan as represented to be. God is not like a Roman dictator. God does not enforce punishments upon people who choose to deviate from his design. But those deviations are painful and there is a punishment if we're not reconciled. Any thoughts about that? Aren't these quotes powerful? Yeah, here's another one. Councils on Health, page 31. The very essence of the gospel is restoration. 
restoration. And the Savior would have us bid the sick, the hopeless, and the afflicted take hold upon his strength. The power of love, again, here we go, was in all Christ's healing, and only by partaking of that love through faith can we be instruments of his work. If we neglect to link ourselves in divine connection with Christ, the current of life-giving energy cannot flow in rich streams from us to the people. What is it that's flowing? Love. We are to be connected to him. He came so that God's love could be again flowing. And think about the purpose and creation of mankind. Know ye not that ye are a temple of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit dwells in you? We would be the embodiment. Where was God's law of love to be written? In the heart and mind. Get your mind around this. This law of love is not a, a, a regimented list of rules, a code. It is a living reality. And humankind were built to live out the law of love in the way they function. Now, did God, when man fall into sin, stoop down to meet him and provide a codification, an expression of that law for man in their fallen state? And can we look at that codification, the Ten Commandments, and learn things about God's character? Sure. Absolutely. Just like we can take some of your DNA and we can now, we can actually uh, take your DNA and we can write your exact sequence on a piece of paper. And we can look at that sequence and we can read it on paper. And we can know your eye color, your blood type, and many other things about you. Risk for breast cancer and many other things, just by reading the code. But from, and so we could say this is a transcript of you. Just like the Ten Commandments are a transcript of the Lord. But do we know from reading that piece of paper the sound of your laugh, the warmth of your hug, the joy in your smile. You see, the law of love is a living law, and only in a living being can it be fully realized. Satan wants to corrupt our ability to experience this love by focusing us on a list of rules in which we have to appease some dictator for breaking those rules. And if God were like So, exactly. So back to then to the question from Timothy that through the gospel, death is destroyed. Let's ask the question. Why does death come? From whence does death come? Because Christ, through the gospel, destroys death. So where is death originating? If one believes a lie of Satan... And in this dialogue I've been having with some theologians this week, it has been put to me several times that God, in order to be just, must execute the wicked. And Christ, as our substitute, took that execution and God killed Christ at the cross. This is what they present. This is, by the way, theologians of this denominational organization that I've been dialoguing with. Just to be clear, you're talking about eternal death. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. The wages of sin death. So, if this were true, if it was true that God inflicts death on the wicked, there are several problems with this. First problem, God then becomes the source of death. So Eastern religions which teach eternal dualism, the eternal existence of both good and evil are true. There is not going to be a universe in the future where evil is gone because the source of death comes out from God. His character not only is the source of life, but death. And that's a problem. The Bible says, however, that Satan is a murderer. Jesus' word, Satan is a murderer from the beginning. Death comes out from Satan. This is from Second Selected Messages, page 288. Quote, Christ never planted the seeds of death in the system. 
Satan planted these seeds when he tempted Adam to eat of the tree of knowledge, which meant disobedience to God. That doesn't come from God. Death comes from deviating from how God designed life to operate. And if one believes this lie that death comes from God and God in order to be just must punish and kill the wicked, then think through the meaning of that. Satan, and I'm going to play the the devil's advocate here, okay? And so Satan stands up and tells you guys, hey guys, I never said God wasn't powerful. My my concern with God is he's not good. See, if he could just get a little bit of, you know, anger management classes, get a little self-control, not lash out against us with his mighty wrath and power to hurt us. If he would just leave us free to be ourselves, we could live for eternity in sin because there's nothing wrong with sin. There's only something wrong with God who will kill you for it. Do you see the problem when we put that death comes out from God? Then there really isn't anything wrong with sin. There's only something wrong with God who kills you, which is a huge lie. Sin pays its wage. What's the scripture say? The wages of sin is... Death, that's exactly right. So that's another one. And then, if you believe that lie, then it results in creating false remedies, false theologies, false solutions, namely penal substitution theology, in which Jesus took our legal penalty upon himself, upon, and God is the, the one inflicting the pain and suffering upon him. And this results in distorted God concepts where people can't really trust God. They fear him. They, they trust Jesus. Jesus is awesome. We love you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We're so thankful Jesus is in heaven pleading his blood to his Father to protect us from the wrath of the Father. And, and some organizations not only have Jesus, but Mary and all the saints up there to put a shield between us and him. And then we teach theologies like, well, when the Father looks at us, he can't see us in our wickedness because we're covered with the robe of his son's righteousness. Or when our sins are in the record book of heaven, we accept Jesus, he wipes out that record and puts Jesus' perfect record in, in our books in heaven. So when God looks at our books, he can only see a, a right accounting. Why? Because we're afraid of God seeing us. We can't trust him. God will hurt you if he really knows what you are. He's not out to help you. But this is contradictory to all scripture. If God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare a son but gave him up, how will he not along with him give us all things? Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus? He is at the Father's right hand and is also interceding for us. That word also is very powerful. Also in addition to who? The Father, Christ, in addition to the Father, is on our side. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. This, this other thing puts barriers where people have these false solutions that bring no power. No power. Thus they have a form of godliness that Paul says, but deny the power thereof. Because they deny the gospel, the good news, that God is is exactly like Jesus. They deny this. And there is no healing in a legal solution. And you can think of the, the, uh, the foolishness of some of this. You go to the ER sick, terribly sick, and, bef- and when the doctor comes in to examine you, you shove your healthy brother in the way and say, examine him in my place. Whatever you find, put it in my record. <laughs> You get a court of law to declare you healed. Yes. And, and, or you go to a court of law and you have the court of law declared you completely well. And take that record over to the court and have the court examine the record and the court declares me well. You're still not well. This is, this is what, what this theology does. And it corrupts the thinking. 
But we, when we come to the truth, we pray like David. And what did David say? Search me and see the wicked way in me, O God. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. See, we understand God is for us. He is our heavenly physician. He wants to restore, recreate, regenerate, cleanse us. Take out the heart of stone. Put in the heart of flesh. Write the law in the heart and mind. We go to him and say, find what's broken. Find what's defective from your design. You're the designer. You built us originally. And in Christ, you reconstructed us rightly. Take all that Christ has achieved and reproduce it in me. So the Bible then says the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, or sin when full grown brings forth death, James 1.15, or whoever sows to please the flesh from the flesh reaps from the flesh, reaps destruction, Galatians 6.8. So why does death come? Why? Because it takes us out of harmony with how, with God himself and his own design for life. Life can't exist there. And what causes that that break, that break in that unity with him. And what causes distrust? There you go. Satan is the father of, this is his power. Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. If you believe your wife is having, or your husband is having an affair when they're not, but you believe they are, think what changes inside you. Love and trust is broken. Yes. When we truly understand the truth of the nature of God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, we're not afraid at all for them to see what's in our heart. We're not hiding like Adam and Eve. We truly, that's truly a joy for us. Show me what's there because you have the answer. You have the change. I want you to show me. I want you to see it. I want to be fully exposed. And see, many people live in fear of going to heaven. They do. You know, in the olden days of Adventism when I was a kid. Um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there were people that were afraid of, uh, of uh, the close of probation and having to stand before God without an intercessor in heaven. You ever heard those stories? I hope I pass into the grave before that day comes so I don't have to stand before God without an intercessor. You remember hearing those prayers? Think about it. What are they revealing about their view of God? It's horrible stuff. They live in fear. There's no peace. There's no joy there. But if you understand even the the true teaching of the sanctuary, it is through Christ a new and living way has been opened to take us back into the throne of grace that we can go boldly before God in heaven. Yes, something back here? Yes. Can we be totally healed while we're on this earth? In in what way? Well, your question a minute ago was... Christ, you know, the model is that he will heal us and restore us. Was Enoch and Elijah totally healed spiritually in character such that they were ready to walk into heaven here on this earth? There you go. Yes, we can be in heart and mind. We don't get physio... My understanding is we do not get physiological, biological perfection until the second coming. Paul, you know, states, is it Romans 7, I think, things I want to do. I don't do the things I don't want to do. I do. Yes. There's that struggle continually going on. Yes. Just trying to reconcile that with the healing. Yes. And so what is the core issue? It is one of trust. Do I trust him with the outcomes of my life? Do I trust him enough that I will choose to, to do what I understand he'd have me do, even though it's scary to do it? Or do I let my feelings of fear and insecurity override what I would understand God would have me do? Not trusting him with how things would turn out. And so, and this is the big issue. The just means those that are right or set right or doing right, the just, shall live by 
faith, and faith means trust. So example, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on the plain of Dura. Their decision was bow or don't bow. Right? That was a decision in governance of themselves to do what is right in the action and authority they have over self that God has given them. Bow or don't bow. Could they, though, control how things would turn out after that? That was not theirs. That means the, the just doing what's right in governance of self trusts God with how things turn out. Now look at that whole, there's a whole sequence of events here. Do you think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because they trusted God, had no fear? Uh, do you think they weren't tempted with their own emotions? Christ in Gethsemane, anguished with terrible emotions, yet he trusted his father with the outcome. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did the same thing. And because they trusted him, they said, and they said to Nebuchadnezzar, um, we know that our God can deliver us from the fiery furnace, O king, but even if he doesn't, we won't bow. They had no word from God that he would deliver. They only knew he could deliver. And because that they were willing to do what's right in governance themselves, trusting God with how things turn out, God could use them to convert Nebuchadnezzar. But if I had been there, and I, I just put myself there because I, I don't know that I would be able to stand... Not put you and me there together, Chip. Okay? <laughs> we're standing there on the plane of Durham. We're looking at each other going, bowing to idols is just not right. We can't do that. But you know what, Chip? Fiery furnaces are not on the game plan here. <laughs> Isn't that what we're thinking? Yeah. And so I, and, and the bright idea hits me, and I'll probably talk you into it. When the music plays, we'll tie our shoes. <laughs> the Lord knows my heart. He knows. He's like, man looks on the outward appearance. I can't, I can't help that they're thinking that I'm bowing. The Lord looks in my heart. He knows I'm not bowing to that at all. I'm just tying my shoe. I can't help that. <laughs> Isn't this how we work? Trying to go, but if, if, if they'd have done that, could God have used them to reach Nebuchadnezzar? And, and, and not only that, would they have had the same amount of peace and security? See, because playing the fence, they don't stand for either side. They're afraid they're still going to be exposed by somebody who said, hey, they weren't bowing, they were tying their shoe. But now can they really expect God to stand for them because they haven't stood for him? There's no joy there when we try to compromise. So what is the perfection? It's a perfect trust with, God, with our lives in the outcome of our lives. It's not perfect performance in every act of life. That's the big difference. Yes? I think what Paul did, you know, so at that point he was questioning, you know, what his, um, you know, why do I deal with these things? But yet on his way to Rome, he gets in a boat wreck. He goes on there and gets um, bitten by a viper. And there's no fear at that point. Complete trust. Hangs it over a fire, falls in the fire. And he says that basically I'm living for God. And, and if you look at the book of Acts and the life of Paul, Paul was warned repeatedly by the Holy Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. <laughs> repeatedly, if you read it. If you add Ellen White's insight, she said that he was not given direction from God to go to, the, to Jerusalem. He went against God's directions to go to Jerusalem. Does that mean he sinned and was cast off and was rejected by God and lost? No. Because his motive for going, even though he went against God, if you read the story of Acts, his motive for going was love for the people. He loved the Jews and he wanted to convert them. And so God still used him in a circumstance where God wanted to protect him from. And God wanted to protect him from what they would do to him in Jerusalem. And that's what ultimately led to his being sent to Rome and his execution. So, alrighty. Um, so the eternal good news, the good news that God is love. 
And his design for life is love. And he's exactly like Christ. It's always been so. It always will be so. And this, earth, this good news was brought to earth by Jesus in both truth to reveal God's character, but in action, this is important, in action to restore God's character into the species human while destroying the infection of fear and selfishness which plagues us. This is what he did in his life. He lived out the law perfectly. Did you have a comment? Um, I just wanted to ask about the passage that says, when we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. Yes, that's a great point. So no matter how, I mean, this basically that God never changes. Same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. His character doesn't change. So when we deviate and we mess up, he doesn't become angry and wrathful. He's faithful to his own nature and character of love. He's not two-faced. You can see this in the life of uh, the apostles, Peter and, and Judas. Do you think Jesus looked to those two disciples with a different affect on his face? Love to Peter, and I'm going to get you, Judas, baby. You think that's what his look or His look was great sadness and love for Judas, too. His heart was breaking for him. And yet, what, what, what did both do? Peter went out and wept bitterly and converted, died to self. Judas went out and gave up his own life at his own hand. In the end, when Christ returns, he's coming, sitting on his throne, and the people on earth, this is our God, we've waited for him, those who are translated and going into heaven, but the others are going to run and hide and beg for the mountains to hide him from him, the face of him who sits on the throne. Do you think he's two-faced with two different looks? No. It's the heart of the person looking. They can't tolerate the love and grace. It tears them apart inside. They don't want to be there. Moses coming off the mountain, his face radiating a little bit of this light from God's divine glory, the people in their conscious guilt shrunk back and it caused them anguish. They said, please put a veil. We don't want to see it. Sunday's lesson, the gospel in the Old Testament. Is there a gospel in the Old Testament? Good news in the Old Testament? Jesus said in John five thirty nine, you study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me. This is the good news. The good news about God, which is the revelation of Christ in the Old Testament. It was always there. And of course, Exodus chapter 34, the Lord gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. Way in the back, comment. And we'll come back to this. this. I want you to be thinking, what does it mean? By no means God will kill the guilty. What, uh, clear the guilty. Why? Yes, back. We had a comment a little earlier that the gospel existed when it was said, and it was good during creation. That was, that's right. And it existed before creation of this planet. The gospel is eternal. It's the good news about who God is, his design, his methods, which are perfect, always are perfect, and has always been true, always will be true. But it was also revealed in creation week. Yes. So, yeah, so what do, what do you think this means in Exodus? By no means will he clear the guilty. What law lens do you look at that statement through? Do you look at that le- le- through the lens of imperial law, like, like human governments operate? Or do you look at it through the lens of design law, the creator of the universe operates? Which lens? Does it mean something different? Well, this is out of uh, a journal written in 1886 uh, called Signs of the Times, July 29, 1886. Sin is transgression of the law, and the wages of sin is death. I'm going to pause. We're going to unpack this statement together. Why? Why is the wages of sin death? Okay, I like that one. Takes you away from God. 
out of harmony with the design. That's exactly right. Life, it's incompatible with how life is constructed. It's like the wages of putting water in your gas tank is a car that won't run. Why? Because, the, well, if you bought it from Ford, Ford will hunt you down and make you and, sh- and take the keys away from you and won't let you run. No. It's not designed to work that way. If you take it out of the design, it won't run. We're designed to operate in love. So it was sin that brought death into the world. This goes back to our earlier comments about does death come out from God? Death does not come out from God. It was sin that brought death into the world. Had there been no sin, there would have been no death. Christ died as the sinner's substitute to save him from the penalty of disobedience. So what is the penalty of disobedience? Which law lends? Penalty of disobedience through a Roman imperial dictator law? Penalty of disobedience from design law? How do you see that? The statement is actually absolutely true. But you can interpret it completely opposite ways. If you look at it through human law, if you look at it through human law, what is the penalty of disobedience? God inflicting pain, suffering, and death upon you to be just. If you look at it through design law, what's the penalty of disobedience? A natural, natural effect. It's still death, but it's a consequence of destroying your own self. And we'll come to some other quotes in a mo- moment. If a child drinks poison in disobedience to their parents' rules to stay out of the medicine cabinet, is there a penalty for their disobedience? Yes, the parent would pull out a belt and beat them to death, right? No. The penalty is the consequence of what they've done. Could the law of God have been, back to the quote, could the law of God have been changed or abolished, Christ need not have died. For death was not necessary in order to abolish the law. Very interesting statement. Death was not necessary in order to abolish the law. If death was not necessary to abolish the law, then what did get abolished, abolished by Christ's death? What gets destroyed by Christ's death? And there's scripture for that. If If you're processing through your scriptural database, Hebrews 2.14, he took upon himself human flesh that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Uh, if you go to uh, uh, 2 Timothy 1.10 that we already quoted today, that through the gospel and by his death he destroys death and brings life and immortality to light, and 1 John 3.8, that by his death he destroys the devil's work. And how would you describe the devil's work? What has the devil worked to do? Lie He's lied for sure, but to what end? Particularly, he has wanted to efface the image of God in man and put Satan's image where God's image should be. He wants to, instead of the you being a temple for the Holy Spirit, as Revelation says, he wants you to become a synagogue of Satan, where the satanic character is solidified into you. That's his work. Christ destroyed that work by perfectly restoring God's image in man, in his humanity at the cross. He destroyed it, yes. Jesus's probably most often quote is, follow me. And what's he doing? He's leading us to God and the truth of God. Absolutely. The truth will set us free. Absolutely. So the fact that God, just continue on the quote, the fact that God spared not his own, own sinless beloved son from the penalty he pledged himself to bear as the sinner's substitute is the most telling argument that could be produced to show that the claims of his law will not be released, even the slightest degree, to save the sinner. How do you hear that? Which law lens do you hear that through? What does the law claim? This is a very important one. Because those who operate under imperial law teach that the law claims a death. 
those on to operate under design law, uh, Desire of Ages, page 762, the law requires righteousness, a righteous life. This man has not to give, but Christ came in the form of man, developed a perfect character. This he offers as a free gift to all who will accept it. Why does the law require righteousness? That's a, for the same reason that the law of respiration required that you breathe. Why does the law of respiration require, it's a requirement, that you breathe? Why? Why can the law not be changed to meet the sinner in their sin? If you tie a hundred pounds of lead to your feet and jump overboard in the ocean, the law of respiration cannot be changed to meet you in that situation. It is uncompromising. Because that's how things are actually built to work. Design law does not compromise with deviations from it. Exactly, thankfully, exactly right. So when Adam sinned, God did not get changed in any way. God's law did not get changed in any way. The human condition in Adam was changed to be deviant from his design and terminal heading to a trajectory of death. So Christ stepped into that trajectory, took our condition, our infirmities, our iniquities upon himself. He became sin, though he knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. We might be restored back to rightness and health with God. He altered the outcome in Jesus Christ. Humanity has eternal life now. And because of the person of Jesus, if you get your mind around this, the species human was saved in the person of Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, there is a perfect human being who has never sinned and will always exist. So this creation was saved in the person of Jesus Christ. But it was more than that. Through his act, he also provided remedy for many more specimens if they so willingly partake of this remedy free offered, that you can be healed and restored to rightness as well. Monday's lesson. The gospel made flesh. What is the gospel and how was it made flesh? Hopefully you're thinking John 1. The Word was made flesh, and the Word dwelt among us. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Yes, this is Jesus, of course. Uh, In the last paragraph in Monday's lesson, it says, Jesus suffers at the real Passover lamb, the death that should have been ours. Thus, salvation is free to us because Jesus paid the full price for it. Again, how do you hear this language? Do you hear this language in imperial law? Or do you hear this language in design law? Do you hear, and most teach this under imperial law constructs. And then they run into problems like, okay, he paid the full price. Who did he pay it to? I've had discussions with theologians in our church, and I asked them, did he pay it to God? Oh, no, no. He didn't pay it to God. Who, who did he pay it to? People that you would know by name. They're very, very well known. I won't mention them. But the answer was, to the law. But isn't the law a transcript of God's character? So he's playing to the law, he's playing to God, right? So they were tangled. They didn't know how to get out of that. But, yes, you got a comment. Uh, you said Jesus provided the remedy. Yes. And I agree with it, but I'd just like you to explain how, what is the remedy? Okay. Provided the remedy. L- l- let's see if we can tie it into this example about, about paying the price. If your child is dying with renal failure and you donate a kidney to save your child, could we say, and be correctly understood, quote, 
you paid the full price necessary to save your child. Unquote. Could we say that? Could we use that language in that context? And we understand what it means, don't we? Yes, we, it means you went to court and you put down a million dollars or something. No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that at all. Was there a legal price being paid when you gave your kidney? There's no legal price. Why was your kid? Why was donating your kidney the full price to save your child? Why was that the price that had to be paid? Why? When life was designed. Get your mind around that idea. Get your mind around that idea. And who was the price of the kidney paid to? Who received it? Hmm. Get your mind around that. So, what holds us in bondage? Because it's also the metaphor of ransom is used, which is, what is our function of a ransom? Function of a ransom is the price necessary to free one from captivity or bondage. So what actually holds human beings in the bondage of sin? There are two factors that hold us in bondage. One, the lies that we believe about God that keep us from trusting him. So Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free from bondage. Okay, number one. So one part of the remedy was the revelation of truth. But that's not all that holds us in bondage. The other thing that holds us in bondage is our own carnal nature. We're held in bondage by our own corrupt desires and nature. Thus, we need a new nature. And so Christ came and developed, as the quote in Desire of Ages said, the law requires righteousness, a righteous life. This man is not to give. But Christ came in the form of man and developed a perfect character. This he offers as a free gift to all who will receive it. It's a free gift if we receive it. So who's receiving the gift? Who's receiving the gift of the perfect character? Is it offered to his father? And see, this is the metaphor of the blood. The life is in the blood, according to Leviticus. And Jesus said in John 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't be with me. But we have it all twisted. We have Jesus in heaven offering his blood to his father. No, his father doesn't need truth. His father doesn't need a new character. We need truth to set our minds free from lies. And we need a new character. It's offered to us. We're to partake it. We're to internalize it. So the remedy is the truth about God that restores us to trust. In trust, we open the heart. And Jesus said to his apostles, it's expedient for you that I go. If I don't go, the spirit won't come or the comforter won't come. When he comes, he will not speak on his own. Well, then if he's not speaking on his own, who's he speaking for? For Jesus. He's Jesus' representative. He's the words of Christ. Being spoken. He will not speak on his own. And keep going for Christ's quote. He will take what is mine and make it known to you. So what is it that Christ achieved that we need? A new heart and right spirit. The law written on the heart and mind. The, the, the heart circumcised by the spirit. The heart of stone removed. The heart of flesh put in. To be reborn. To be regenerated. To have the mind of Christ. It's all the same. That through Jesus Christ, the human species was cured in his person, and he's revealed the truth that sets us free from lies, and in trust we receive the indwelling spirit, and the spirit takes what Christ has achieved, and it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. As Peter says, we become partakers of the divine nature. We actually get new motives. If you want to use an Ellen White quote, in Christ's object lesson, she says that our thoughts are brought into harmony with his thoughts. Our desires emerge with his desires. We live his life. This is what it means to be covered in the robe of his righteousness. It's actually regenerational, transformational. We get new motives. And this is a miracle. Amen. This is a miracle. And, and, and hopefully you've all experienced this. 
that you have new desires. Now, there's a battle that wages in our hearts because the devil doesn't give up, and he tempts us with fear and selfishness, but we have new motives, and we don't have to give in to those temptations anymore. I'm going to jump. Maybe we'll come back to it, but I'm going to jump into Thursday's lesson. Because in Thursday's lesson, it talks about the climax of the gospel. It talks about the Advent message. It talks about the three angels' messages. An eternal gospel that is to go to the world. And I'm going to tell you, I am concerned that within our own organization, that this message has been filtered through imposed law and misrepresented for what it really means. How many have heard that the hour of his judgment has come is the hour that God is having a judicial proceeding in heaven, examining books and meeting out punishments or rewards? This is not what it means at all. Paul says in Romans 3, 4, God, may you win your case when you take it into court. God, may you be proved right when you are judged, depending on which translation you use. In heaven, who were the allegations against? Who did Satan allege could not be trusted? So if you're in a marriage relationship and somebody lies to your spouse that you've been cheating and you haven't been, but your spouse now believes the lie, your spouse has moved out, your spouse is hurt, your spouse is angry, your spouse has filed for divorce, you haven't done anything wrong. You love your spouse. You understand your spouse is a victim of a liar and you want to reconcile with your spouse. What will you have to do? Will you have to prove your innocence? Who's on trial? Did you do anything wrong? This is God. He's in this position. He's done nothing wrong, but he's still on trial. In the minds of his created beings, who can you trust? So fear God. Be in awe of God. That's what fear means. Be in awe of God and reveal his true character. Give him glory. Reveal his true character of love in your life for the time in earth's history has come for everyone to make a right judgment about God and his character, and his methods. Call them back to worship and adore him who made the heavens and the earth. Call them back to design law and worship the designer and reject the dictator view of God's because Babylon, that confused system of imposed law in which God's law is misrepresented as a, a list of rules, it results in a contradictory system within Christianity that has fractured into 34,000 different Christian groups all claiming the Bible support their, their views. It's confused with all these different voices, and it doesn't make sense, because they have accepted the lie that God's laws like Rome impose rules and God must punish like a dictator. And everyone who accepts this lie about God and marks themselves in their forehead by truly believing God is like a dictator and his laws imposed, and God is the source of imposed punishment and death, and those who mark themselves in their hand by going along with such perverse systems of coercion based on human law will be tormented in mind, heart, and character when they come into the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. For having rejected the truth about God, there is no healing for their terminal condition and a legal solution appeasement model. Our Heavenly Father, I know you long to come so that we can see you face to face, but the scripture says, we will see you face to face because we will be like you. We can only see you face to face when we have been healed, restored, renewed, recreated to be like you in heart, mind, and character. And Lord, this world is corrupt with distortions about you that cause people to fear you, to be terrified of you, to believe that you're against them. We ask that your spirit will be poured out. We ask for the latter rain to empower us and those around the world who know the truth about your character.
enable us to put the pieces of the of the historical record together in a way that that reveal you in an amazing light, amazing glory, that that we can be this witness for you so that others can make a right judgment about you and open their heart and trust and then receive the indwelling spirit to transfer them to be like you so that we might see you face to face. We pray in your holy name. Amen.